Here's the deal. We, uh, we are in week nine of our 10-week series, um, talking and tracking about the attributes of God. And we are today tackling this issue of faithfulness. And as you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but, but we are using the book Real God by Chip Ingram uh, to kind of work through this series uh, and, and added some, some weeks of our own. Um, but, uh, but we're kind of use that as the jumping off point. And there's a, there's a, a, an illustration that, that Chip uses in his, in his chapter on faithfulness that I thought was, was too good for us to pass up. And what he does is he, he shows you a picture of his family, and, and then he talks about um, how God has demonstrated faithfulness in that. And so um, with full understanding that this is not my illustration, it's his, uh, we're going to steal it. Except I'm going to show you my family, not his. Because uh, that wouldn't mean anything for you, probably. So this is our newest family picture. It was eight years in the making. Uh, the last family picture we had, Aubrey was three. Um, we were all much more attractive back then. Um, that's not true. But that's why we held on to it so long. I was thinner. This was brown. Okay. And I had more hair. And so like, you know what, that's the picture we're going to have in the hallway, but now we have this one. Um, and it's a good picture. When you look at that, what I want you to see is, is a nice, happy family, because that's what we are. We genuinely care for one another. We're a happy family. But, but what you should see as you look at that is a trophy. And not my trophy, but a trophy of God's faithfulness. See, because what you don't know, and, and you could all do this. In fact, I'd encourage you, small group leaders, you can, you can prep this for your small groups that happen later um, in the week. Bring a family picture and, and talk through this um, in your small group. But what you see there is a picture of God's faithfulness demonstrated in the fact that there we are together. Because what you don't know or what you can't see in that picture is the years of struggle and difficulty. Going, going back to my childhood even, you know, starting at a place where, where I had parents that knew about God but didn't really honor or love God and, and, and in, a, in a scenario where um, they, they kind of played the game. But God was so faithful because instead of doing what that should do, statistically speaking, what it does to our kids, which is turn them off completely when parents play, the game of religion and Christianity. That, that, that ruins kids. We've talked about that before. But instead of it ruining, uh, there was something about it that was intriguing, and God was faithful in drawing me in to a life of faith early. But I'm stupid. And I am, I mean, we know this. Like I, it's not like I, I took my life of faith that, that happened when I was 12 and I ran with it. No, I mean, I'd take three steps up and four steps back, and, and then maybe I'd get really serious, and I'd, I'd strive ahead for a couple of months, and then I'd do something stupid all over again, and, and God continued to pursue me. Um, it, was, it was more like, like hounding to the point where um, when I was um, just kind of getting out of college that, that God was, was grabbing my heart and telling me that I needed to be serious. And then I did that thing that you're not supposed to do. And I don't tell you this because I think it's a model for you. I tell you this because it's difficult. I dated a woman who is not a Christian. 
I got serious with a woman who is not a Christian. I married a woman who is not a Christian. And as a baby Christian, as not a baby, I mean, I've been a Christian for, for 13 years, but as an immature Christian, that wrecked us. And there were tensions and there were struggles and there were fights. But God was faithful. And God put people in Carrie's life, mainly through her small group, uh, the small group that we joined, kicking and screaming, by the way. God put people in her life that poured into her and, and, and it, that taught her and that loved her unconditionally and it brought her to a point of faith. And, and our marriage grew stronger than it had been until I decided that God was calling me to be a pastor. And then we kind of went through that whole cycle again. But God was faithful. And we had kids. We adopted Riley when she was 10. And her situation wasn't awesome. But God was so faithful to her. And God put us in the right context with the right people and the right youth leaders at the church at the time and, and that, that loved and poured into her and supported us as we loved and poured into her and did what... I mean, how do you go... Listen, I was 25 and I was single. The next thing you know, I was 26 and I had a 10-year-old. Listen, man, that's weird. But God was faithful and Riley is now a, a, a beautiful, wonderful 25-year-old woman who is walking with the Lord, and she's pouring it out for God, and she's trying her best. She's serving in ministry at a church in North Liberty because God is, is faithful. And then you see Travis and Aubrey, and their stories aren't written yet, but we can still see in their young lives how each step of the way, God has continued to be faithful and bring us through things that we have no business expecting God to bring us through and bring us to this point. You know what? Eight years from now, when we finally get another family picture taken, <laughs> God willing, there will be grandchildren. There will be in-laws. And it'll grow. Why? Because of God's faithfulness. See, what you should see when you look at this is if, if God had a mantle, this would be a picture, a trophy of the faithfulness of God that we don't earn and that we haven't deserved that would be there because that's who God is, always faithful, always true. And so I'd encourage you, you know what? Have this conversation. Have this conversation. If you're in a small group, have this conversation. If you're not in a small group, grab a family picture and set up lunch with somebody and talk about how God has demonstrated faithfulness in your life. And then, and then think with anticipation on what the next picture will look like. Because God continues to be faithful. See, that's the deal, is God will not quit. God will never quit on you. God will always pursue you because God is faithful. And that's what I want us to understand this morning. As, we, as we're getting near the end of this series, as, as we get to, to this closing up part, okay, um, and next week we'll talk about the sufficiency of God, how he is everything that we need, and he is the only thing that we'll ever save. And we'll, we'll get there and we'll deal with that. But today as we talk about God's faithfulness, I, I, just, I want you to get this thing, that God will not quit you. When you think of God's faithfulness, you think of his allegiance, you think of his long-suffering. You think of his um, steadfastness, his resoluteness. God is a promise keeper. 
And that's good for us. And the reason that's good for us is because we all, all of us in this life, we need something or someone to hold us up inside. I mean, we, we all have someone or something that, that we use that holds us up inside. And, and when it's working and when we're standing up tall and, and when it's, it's work, then we are filled with joy. When it lets us down, then there's anxiety and frustration and maybe even despair. And so what happens is life is like a roller coaster because the, the thing is, there is no one or no thing that is ever going to come through for you 100% of the time. There's no thing in my life or, or no human person in my life that's going to come through for me 100% of the time. And so what I have is I have a life that looks a lot like a roller coaster. And there are days when it's good and I'm filled with joy and it's right. And then there are days when I'm anxious and depressed and I struggle and, and it just kind of comes up and down. But the reality is that God will come through 100% of the time. And so what we have to do is, you know, we've talked about this. The thesis of the entire series is that when we understand the character of God, that it changes everything. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. It changes everything. Because if I understand and I can wrap my hands around the idea that God is always faithful, that God is always for me, that God will never quit me, God will never give up, and God will come through 100% of the time, then I can get off the roller coaster. Because while roller coasters are a lot of fun to ride for 90 seconds... It's a pretty awful way to live. Emotionally, it will wreck us. And when I can understand that God is the only one and I can put all of my faith and trust in him and I can lift him to that ultimate point where I'm trusting him more than I'm trusting anything else, then I can step off the roller coaster and I can have a nice, even, smooth ride. I don't have to worry about the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs. A.W. Tozer talks about God's faithfulness this way. It's just a, a, an awesome thing that I wanted to share with you. He says, God's faithfulness is that all of his acts are consistent with all of his attributes. Means that God will never be someone that he's not. We've talked in this series about God's love, his goodness, his preexistence. We've talked about his mercy and his grace and his justice and today is faithfulness and the reality is this god will always be consistent with who he is god will never be someone he's not god can't be someone he's not they all harmonize and work together i love the way he says it uh, they all harmonize and blend into each other in the infinite abyss where only there do god's attributes make sense together Okay, so let's tackle some, some of these things here. We're going we're gonna to jump in. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Uh, now, now, we sang this song, right? Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. It's this wonderful hymn that we know. By the way, you know that hymn written in absolute tragedy. I don't know if you know the story of that hymn or not, but, but I'll share it with you briefly if you don't, uh, that the author of that hymn um, suffered several major tragedies in his life. Uh, first being the Chicago Fire. Lost nearly every earthly, worldly possession he owned in the Chicago Fire. He was in real estate and, and had properties, and, and all of them burned up. Several years later, got on a boat, um, planned 
to, to take his family back to England, um, his, his wife and children, uh, three of them, I, I think, and, and he was to go with them, but he got delayed by some business things, and so he sent them on ahead without him, and while they were on their way over the ocean, the boat sank. Only his wife survived. And so she sent word um, that, that the children are dead. And so he's lost all of his worldly possessions, and now he's, he's lost his children. And, and he takes a boat to go join his wife in their grief. And, and as he's traveling over the ocean, he writes that song. You can imagine the thought process going through his mind. Great is thy faithfulness. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, this is, this is the tension here. And this is the same thing that happens. When Jeremiah writes these words, Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, when he writes these words, he is sitting on a hilltop and he is looking over his city, God's city, and it is in ruins. The temple has been razed to the ground. And he is looking at the wall around the city has crumbled. The temple has been brought down. And he's looking at his city in ruins. Everything is wrong. He is a prophet of God. His whole job was to tell people, stop what you're doing. Repent. Turn around. This is going to end badly for you. Let's fix it before it's too late. That was his whole job. Nobody listened. And he's sitting on the hill and he's looking at a ruined city and and the people either dead or taken into captivity. Only a handful have been left. And, and, And he writes these words recorded for us in the book of Lamentations. This is his lament. In case you were curious what that meant, it's his lament looking over the ruined city. And he writes these words. It's because of the Lord's great love that we are not utterly consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And there's this declarative statement, great God is your faithfulness. See, here's what you need to understand about God's faithfulness. It is unwavering. It doesn't change. It's always good. It always trumps circumstances. It's always right. And and the reason that God's faithfulness, um, or I'm sorry, the reason that there's mercies new every morning and his compassions never fail is because of the faithfulness. And so I want you to see how this works. When, when you became a Christian, if you're here today and you're a Christian, that means you're following Jesus Christ, okay? Um, if you're not, listen in to how this works with God's faithfulness. But if you are, this is true for you. You became a Christian, okay? You decided to turn and repent from your sinfulness and to trust the God of the universe and you're walking with him, the Holy Spirit comes in you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that you're a new creation. Your old life is dead. Your new life has become the Holy Spirit and now dwells inside of you. You are part of this new covenant, this new creation. It's by the virtue of that covenant that this promise holds true. Because you are now a new creation, because you are now a Christian, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, this is true for you. This will always be true for you. There are mercies waiting for you every day. 
And because of God's faithfulness, you in this new covenant, you in your position as Christian, God's compassion is always there for you. you will, there will never be a moment that you are without the compassion of God and the mercies of God poured into you. If you're not a Christian, you will experience God's compassion and you will experience his mercies also. But this is otherworldly the way this happens here. As a believer in Christ, when you're following him, every day, there are new mercies and new graces. There is new compassion. And it's all due to the faithfulness of God. You're like, what does it mean that God is faithful? You know what it means that God is faithful? It means that every day, you will have what you need to get through. Every day, you'll have what you need to get through. There will never be a day that you are missing what it takes to thrive. You will always have the mercy you need. You will always have the grace you need, and you will always have the compassion you need. Why? Because God's faithful. Because he won't quit. It's who he is. Think about this. In Revelation 19, we meet this picture of Jesus coming again to judge. All right, we talked about that last week. Um, coming to judge evil once and for all. Coming to rid the earth of pain and sorrow and evil, to wipe away every tear, to make all things new, to fix it all. Revelation 19, he is the rider on the white horse. And of all the things that God could call himself is the rider on the white horse. Guess what name he gives himself? John says, behold, I looked, I saw the rider on the white horse, and his name was this. this. Of all the names God could give himself, this is what he says. His name is faithful and true. God takes his faithfulness so seriously that of all the things he could say about himself in that moment, what he says is, behold, there's the rider, his name, faithful and true. It's a big deal. And we see it. Just like every other week in this series, we see God demonstrate his faithfulness in so many ways. We're going to work through a couple pretty quickly, and then we're going to linger on a couple of points. Uh, one we'll linger through quickly here is, is through his creation. Psalm 119, 89 and 90 says this, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Get this part now. Your faithfulness continues through all the generations. You establish the earth, and it what? It endures. God demonstrates his faithfulness in the fact that this world endures. You know, the earth spins like crazy, right? We've talked about this before. It rotates, it spins on its axis like crazy. Um, billion times a second, million times a second, something I can't comprehend. Um, and then it, it completes this evolution, this, this revolution around the sun. All of that to the day to the minute with, with, with maybe a few seconds here or there. The North Star, the North Star is, is fixed so well in the sky that it works better than GPS. That everything revolves around the North Star, where it is, everything else is so fixed. See, gravity, thermodynamics, all of these things that we can see, right? We, we say, okay, well, that's science because it's observable and we can predict it. Well, it's science, it's observable, and we can predict it. Why? Because God sets it in motion, and God is faithful, and the earth will endure. Like We live in a world today where there is all kinds of heartache and all kinds of angst and all kinds of anxiety over what's going to happen to Mother Earth. 
It's global warming and it's pollution and it's all of this stuff. And listen to me, hear me well. We should care for our environment. You can't be a good Christian and not care for your environment. We've been called way back in Genesis to be stewards of this world that we live in. But the world is not going to fall apart. Why? Because of God's faithfulness. You established the earth and it endures. Because God's faithful. And he demonstrates it through creation and, and, oh my goodness, and through his people. Here's what he says. He says, I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Okay, and so God demonstrates his faithfulness through what he does in his people. It starts with Abram. Go back to the Old Testament. He calls this guy named Abram out of comfort, and he says, you're going to wander. You're going to live in tents. It's going to be weird, but you'll be okay. And so he, he, he calls him out of this, and, and, and he sends him on his way, and, and, and he guides him along the way, and he takes Abram, and he changes his name to Abraham. And even though his wife is old and he is old, uh, he, give them, he gives them a child. And, and that child is the child of the promise. And, and from that, we, we get the, the birthing and the spawning of this entire nation of Israel, of all of the Jews, this entire nation. Okay, And, and that nation has, through persecution and heartache and heartbreak and worldly forces pushing it against it, that nation has endured. And now here, some 4,000 years later, it thrives. 4,000 years later? That seems light. We'll figure it out later. It's more than that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It thrives. And then we get to this. When there's 12 of them, when Jesus has 12 followers... One of them is a traitor, so really he's got 11, and he says, I am the Christ. I am God incarnate, and on that truth, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand a chance against my church. The gates of hell will never stand against my church. The gates of hell will crumble at the movement of my church. And he says that when, when, when he's got 11 followers. And then there's 120 locked in an upper room, and the next thing you know, they go out and they preach, and there's thousands. And now today, because of God's faithfulness demonstrated through his people, there are millions across the world, millions of followers. And culture, law, all of it influenced by the God of the universe, influenced by Jesus. Why? Because he's faithful and he demonstrates that through his people and there's more, okay? It's not just those people, it's us. You remember the picture? God demonstrates his faithfulness through us as individuals, the way he takes care of us. You know what? I don't know how you feel about um, intergenerational small groups, uh, you know, like, like some of us, we're, ah, we don't really love small groups all that much. Some of us are like, yay, small groups. But, but no matter where you land on that spectrum, um, some of us really, we kind of want our small group people to all look like us. Like I joined a small group and there's all a bunch of 41-year-old married people that have kids at home. And that's where I feel most comfortable, okay? Some of you, you're like, no, 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 that's, that's, those guys are way too old. I need to have a group of 25-year-old people that all look the same with no kids, not married. And then the other end where it's like, well, no, 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 we all need to be retired and kids out of the house. And, and, and that's fine. But, but what's really awesome about intergenerational small groups is you get to hear stories and you get to hear life shared from other people. And I tell you what, I, I, 
I get the opportunity to do that. I, we were sitting in small group not that long ago, a month or so ago, and, and we get to hear Carol Lutz say, you know what? God has pursued me. And, and for her to share just a little bit of the story about how God has been faithful in pursuit of her, her entire life. In spite of things, uh, seeing, looking back how God has used different things and how God has been faithful. Um, you know, having a conversation with Ardell the other day, and, and he's saying the same thing, just about how God has continued to pursue him and continues to use him and, and obviously has work for him to do. Listen, God demonstrates faithfulness not just through the church, but through the individual lives of people that make it up. And he's done that for you. Right? Think of the countless people who, who were ready to be done. They were ready to call their marriage quits because it was too hard and it wasn't working right. And it wasn't like it was shown to be on TV or in the movies. And so it was just, but God shows up and God does things. People who are ready to, to just walk out on their kids because kids are hard. But yet, God shows up, and he's faithful with work, relationships, with temptations. God is faithful, so God shows up with people all the time. He's done that for you. That's why that picture can be so important. Even if you're a single person, it's just a picture of you, where you are now. God has been faithful to get you where you are right now. There's more. God was faithful. His faithfulness is revealed through his word. Read 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Okay, And so we see that what we're talking about there is the Bible. The Bible is God's faithfulness towards us. Um, raise your hand if you got one of these at home. If you don't have one at home, take the one under the seat in front of you. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. You need to have one because this is God's word to us. This is a demonstration of the faithfulness of God towards us. This is how God is faithful, okay? Uh, now, the reason this is important is because you need to understand that there's a cultural challenge out there, and the cultural challenge says, uh, Matt... Every major religion has a holy book. Every world religion has a holy book. And it's different than the Bible, but they consider it to be just as sacred. So why in the world should I believe that the Bible is actually God's word and all the rest of those are not? And those are great questions. They're what we call, in case you want to know the fancy word, they're what we call apologetic questions. Um, not like apologetic, like we're sorry that you asked them. Um, but uh, it wasn't even a joke, geez. Um, but apologetic meaning, what, what it means is the defending of our faith. So apologetics refers to de defense of the faith. What Dave and I will be doing on December 3rd, talking about the problem of evil, that will be an evening that's apologetic in nature. We will be defending the faith, okay? Um, not like we're going to have a big debate, but just in dialogue, talking about how can God be real with all of this happening? Well, how do we know that this is true? And so there's a couple of things I want you to know. One is, here at Blessed Hope, we believe this is the absolute inerrant word of God. That it is 
all we need. It is sufficient. It's everything we need. In fact, now listen carefully here. This is important for you to know. This is something that we break fellowship over. There are, um, there are churches that, that will say, well, this is a good guide, but it, it can't necessarily be trusted to be 100% accurate all the time. We're going to say, there we break fellowship. There are churches that will say, well, yes, this is good, but it's not the only authority. Tradition, what, what, what early church fathers wrote in the second, third, fourth centuries, that is just as important as the Bible. We will break fellowship. We're not mad at tradition and what happened in the second, third, fourth centuries and what the church fathers wrote. We want to bring that in. We want to incorporate it. We want to understand it. But we will always view it through the lens of this because this is the inerrant word of God. That's what we believe. That's what we teach here. Okay? So you need to know that up front. Uh, and we can have confidence in that because God's faithfulness has given that to us. And you say, well, how, do you, how can you know for sure? How do you know? Well, there's a couple things. Um, I'm going to give you a brief primer, and we can talk more about this one-on-one -on -one if you want. Ask your small group leaders. There's a book at the counter called Case for Faith. There's a whole chapter in the book called Case for Faith. It's available. If you're a visitor, that's our gift to you. Stop by, grab one. If you're not a visitor and you want to read it, stop by and get it anyway. Okay? There's a whole chapter about this in there, but I'll give you a couple of quick things. One is the Bible is unequaled in accuracy. The Bible has never been proven false. In fact, the more information we find archaeologically, uh, the more um, we uncover, the more we unearth, the more we find, all of it, all it does is support what we find in Scripture. There has never been an archaeological discovery, no matter what you heard on YouTube. I, again, I'm, I'm going to say, check your sources. Okay, you don't have to believe this because I'm saying it, but find out for yourself. There's never been a discovery that challenges the authority of the Word of God. In fact, there's a couple of interesting things. There are times where, where we found some things, especially in the book of Daniel with the king Belshazzar. There are a couple of things where we think, aha, we found something that must prove that the Bible is false because what I'm reading now doesn't make sense with the biblical account. But then we keep digging, we keep searching, and then we find more, and then later on we have to say, oh, never mind. It makes sense. It works. And that's happened multiple times uh, as, as we look through that stuff. But it's unparalleled, unequaled in accuracy. Every word of God proves true. The Bible has never been disproved um, in, in, in even one little thing. And it's unequaled in prophecy. The Bible is the only prophetic sacred book. What I need you to know is, yes, every religion will have a holy text. Every religion will have a sacred text. The Bible is the only one that is prophetic in nature. You will find no other religious text that's prophetic. The reason that's necessary, that's important for us to understand is because not only is the Bible prophetic, but it's never wrong. The Bible is prophetic and everything it predicts comes true. And so let's, I'm just going to give you a couple of quick examples for this, but the book of Daniel, uh, there's a lot of writing on there, so you'll have to squint, but the book of Daniel predicts four coming world superpowers. And, and it's actually even more impressive than that, I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, but well before it happens, and by the way, the book of Daniel is so accurate that for a long time, anti-biblical um, scholars 
would argue the book of Daniel is too accurate. Therefore, it must have been written after the fact, that it's a lie. Um, but of course, through archaeology, we found, uh, especially with Dead Sea Scrolls and those things, we, we, we found writings of Daniel that predate this. Okay? So that argument's off the table. So we know that Daniel was written prior. We know it was written centuries prior. Okay? We know it was written a long time before. But we see this. The book of Daniel clearly predicts four coming world superpowers. Uh, right now, uh, in, the, in the writing of Daniel, um, at the time he writes this, the Babylonians are in control of the world. Nebuchadnezzar. They're in control of the world. Okay? And, and the first thing is he predicts that the Medes and the Persians will come next, King Cyrus. The reason King Cyrus hasn't come onto the scene yet, nobody knows who Cyrus is. He's not king of anything. But it's important because we read about King Cyrus, Isaiah actually predicts that he, some 80 years later, will send the Jews back to Israel. And of course, that's exactly what we read happens. The Jews are in exile at this time. And, and, and Isaiah, remember Isaiah's looking at his ruined city? I'm sorry, that's Jeremiah. Uh, but Isaiah's, Isaiah's writing prophecy, and he says some 80 years in the future that, that Cyrus is going to be the one, King Cyrus of the Medes and Persians. He's going to send the people back. He, and, and that's exactly what he does. He writes a decree that says, you know what? All of the Israelites can return home if they want to. But he says the Medes and Persians will rise to power. Then after that, he says Greece. Greece will come to power. And that happens with Alexander the Great. And we know that, that Greece conquers, okay, exactly. He, he depicts Greece, Daniel predicts Greece as, as, as a cheetah. And they conquer the known world with speed, like it's never been seen before. And then he predicts Rome, a world power like none has ever seen, will come after Greece. But first, what's, what's awesome about this is he actually talks about, now, so this is, this is hundreds of years prior, he talks about when Greece is done, that somebody will take that crown and will break it into four and will scatter it. And we're like, well, why in the world would that happen? But here's what he says. Daniel says, without war. So this one world power is going to be broken into fourths and scattered without anybody going to war. And we're like, well, how in the world would that be? Well, what happens is when Alexander the Great dies suddenly to avoid civil war, here's what Greece does. They take his kingdom and they break it into four pieces and they give a piece to each general. So now we have four kingdoms come out of this. And the book of Daniel is so detailed in this, inter, this, this time between powers and all of these things that will happen. And historically, we look back and we see they happen just like that. And then, of course, he predicts the coming of the one world government, which we read about in Revelations. The book of Daniel is so prophetic and so accurate. It gives us reason to understand that this is the word of God. There's more. Uh, Malachi, oh my goodness. Malachi, about 400 years prior, says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, new covenant, we're part of that, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so we get this picture, Malachi, 400 years prior okay, to the coming of Jesus. Uh, this is about the Messiah. Malachi says, oh, here, here's the deal. So I'm going to give you some information about this prophetic coming. Um, one, I'm, I'm going to tell you about John the Baptist, the messenger who will prepare the way before him. Okay, not only that, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So we're not talking about just the Messiah. We're talking about God incarnate, the Lord you're seeking. Okay, the God you're seeking will physically come to the temple. So not only that, we know we're talking like running mate. Okay, and then we know it's Jesus, and, and now we know it's Jerusalem. 
We know this because that's where the temple is. And so 400 years prior, you know, it's like if I told you 400 years from now, hey, here's the deal. 400 years from now, here's who's going to run for president. Here, here's who the running mate is going to be. And, and here's where they're going to show up and declare their candidacy. You'd think, man, that guy knows something. It's what we have in Scripture. And there's more. Isaiah 7, 14. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And those are just a couple of snippets of the prophecy that continues to come through in Scripture. Many of it we've seen, some still to come, but we see that God's word always happens the way that he tells us it's going to happen. You can have absolute confidence and faith intellectually that this is the word of God. Okay, now we've done whole sermons on that topic before. We kind of just breezed through it there. Go back and look online if you want to hear more about it. Read that, read that book, or there's plenty that's written out there. But you, what I need you to know now, and not just because I say so, but that you can trust what this says. That God's word is authoritative and it is binding and it is instructive and it is because of God's faithfulness that we have it and can use it uh, to, to grow in him. Okay? So all of that to get here. All of that's an intellectual exercise. And it's important and you need to know it. That God is faithful his faithfulness for you, Christian, means that his mercies and compassion will flow in your life. Why? Because he will not quit. Because it's in his character. We can be sure of God's faithfulness because he demonstrates it. He demonstrates it in nature. He demonstrates it in people, in the church, and in individual lives and families. And he demonstrates it by giving us his word that we can trust. That's an intellectual exercise, and it's good for you to know. But honestly, it's worthless unless we get this next part. And this next part is, is where we need to live from now till, till the end of the sermon, which, which won't take us too long. Um, but but here's, here's where you need, you need to rest, okay? It's that God has demonstrated his faithfulness in the way he shapes your life. Okay? There's three quick points I want to make about how God shapes your life and how his faithfulness shows up as he shapes your life. One is... God's faithfulness shapes you in your weakness. We're all weak. Pretending that we aren't is silly. We all have weakness. We all despair. We're all distraught. We all have those moments. Paul had one. Talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He actually talks about this as a thorn in the flesh. Um, scholars will argue and debate to what the thorn in the flesh was. Um, you know, I could have been... Uh, you know, a, a, it could have been migraines. Some of you struggle with migraines. You would say that is a thorn in the flesh to have migraines before medicine. Boy, that, that would be bad. Uh, for some of you, some people argue, well, it was a sore back. Some people say it was like a speech impediment. I don't know. Some people say it was just crippling, crushing depression. I don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Obviously, we don't need to know or God would have told us. The idea is Paul suffered. He was weak. There was weakness in him, and Paul asked God specifically three times, take it away from me. He probably said something like this, God, I would be a better servant for you if this was gone. 
Like, I would be able to work harder for you. I would be able to do more for you. I could be so much more effective if you would just take this away from me. But God says, no. Here's what God tells Paul. Each time he says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. And so Paul says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. And so something I need you to understand here real quick, it is just simply that God demonstrates faithfulness in your weakness. It's this counterintuitive truth that says simply, when you recognize, now get this, when you recognize and revel in your weakness, glory in your weakness, recognize that you're weak and embrace your weakness. When you do that, God says, that's when I show up as strong. That's when my strength is perfected in you. It's one of the biggest lies out there. You've heard it. Most of you have probably said it. God promises he won't give you more than you can handle. Go ahead. Who's heard it? Who said it? It's not true. It's absolutely unequivocally false. The Bible never says that God will regularly give you more than you can handle. Your whole life is more than you can handle. And he knows it, and he tells it to you, and he says this, it's okay because when you are out of your depth, when you are weak, when you are at the end of yourself, it's okay because that's when my strength is perfected. Yeah, yeah, of course it's more than you can handle. That's what you got me for. That's why I'm here. Some of you today, you're feeling so overwhelmed about something. I mean, I don't know what it is, I mean, but you're feeling so overwhelmed. There's so much pressure. There's so much going on, and you're feeling so much put on you. And you're saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But you know what? You don't always buy it. But God says, that's when I show up. When you embrace your shortcoming, when you embrace that you can't do this, God says, I got it. That's where my strength is perfected in you. But what we typically do, what we typically do is we take that weakness, we take that, and instead of embracing it and owning it and trusting God to fill in the gaps, we turn to something to kind of ease it ourselves. And it's different for everybody. For some of you, it's, it's too much to eat. For some of us, we eat. That's what I do, right? Life gets hard, stuff gets tough, I eat. I, I could deny it, but <laughs> some of us, it's drink. One glass of wine turns into two or three, and we joke about it. This is a four glass night. Ha 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 ha. Like, oh, it's funny, it's a four-glass night, but that's what we do. Some, some of you shop. You spend way more than you need um, or way more than you have for stuff you don't need because it's what we turn to. Or it, it's just relationship. You know, I, I just need somebody for a time because I'm lonely. Or it's pornography or it's prescription drugs or whatever, but we do this. We, see, this is how it tends to work, um, where, where we tend to look for this, this comfort 
somewhere because it's too much for us to handle on our own. And we know it's too much for us to handle on our own. So we turn to a diversion or a distraction. But God says, you don't have to turn to a diversion or a distraction. I know it's too much for you. That's what I'm for. This is where I'm faithful. This is where I show up. This is where I surround you. And, and, and that's the promise of God's faithfulness in your life. He shapes our lives in our weakness if we let him. If we turn to him instead of running to other things, what we'll find is that his strength is sufficient to sustain us. It gives us everything we need. When we turn to him. See, he's there offering. This is what he told Paul. He's like, Paul, I'm, I'm not going to take the weakness away. But I will come in and I will make you strong in the face of it. Because I'm faithful and I'm good. Two, um, he does it in our temptation. And I just, we, we talked about the list of things that we run to. And when we run to something, it's temptation. Here's what he says, though. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God tells us the temptations in your life are no different than what others have experienced. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. If you've ever uttered the words that say the temptation was too strong, there was no way for me to escape, poppycock. Is that a thing? I don't know. I feel like I just made something up there. I don't know. Anyway, hogwash. I don't know what that means either. Nonsense. Stick to what you know, Hans. But there's absolutely zero way that you were ever tempted beyond what you could hold up under. Why? Because God is faithful and he makes the promise. Look, first of all, don't give yourself any credit. You are not going through anything that anybody else has ever gone through. You're like, oh, but Matt, you don't understand. Sure. Like, oh, the pressure is so great. Yeah, whatever. Oh, my family history is so such that, that I didn't have a choice. Yeah, whatever. Because there's nothing unique to you. The temptation in your life is no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can handle. That's the promise. He'll provide you a way out. There's a difference, though. See, this is where you have to understand. There's a difference between temptation and sin. Men, you know this, right? Yeah. You know this, right? The, the, the woman that's scantily dressed walks in front of you. You're going to notice. Listen to me. That is not sinful. Going back for a second look, playing with it in your mind, that's sinful. See, but temptation isn't sin. Okay, temptation isn't sin. It's the giving in to temptation that leads to sin. Uh, Chip Ingram talks about it like this. He says, he calls it besetting sin, that we all have besetting sins, and besetting sins are different. I listed a bunch of them earlier, right? It's the too much wine. It's the, it's the shopping that we don't have the resources for or that get in the way of our being generous with what God's given us. It's, it's the food, it's the alcohol, it's the pornography, it's the relationships, it's the working too much, it's whatever it is. Those are besetting sins. He talks about it like it's chocolate cake. He says this. He says, you know what? Whatever your besetting sin is, picture it like it's chocolate cake, like it's a big piece of chocolate cake and it's on a platter and it's right in front of you. The fact that it's on a platter and it's right in front of you is not sinful. The fact that it's on a platter and it's right in front of you, that's a design of the enemy. 
to parade it in front of your face to make sure that you know you have access to that sin, to make sure you know that you can dig into it anytime you want to. But what that is, is that's an opportunity for God's faithfulness to reign in your life. It's an opportunity for you to walk on by and leave it be. And sometimes if you're like me, maybe you, oh, hey, I got to walk by again. But that's an opportunity for God's faithfulness in your life. To say, no, 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 you can say yes to godliness, no to ungodliness. You can walk away from that. So God is faithful. God is faithful when you are weak. He gives you strength and he props you up. And when, and when you are tempted, he gives you, he promises to give you a way out so that you don't have to give in to that temptation. And there's one last thing he does for you. And it's what happens when you bite. I'd love to tell you that I fight the good fight every time and I always win because God provides me a way out and because I'm strong and because I stand up in the face of temptation and that, that I always win. But I, you know I'm human. I don't have any, I mean, we don't, we don't have secrets. You guys know me well enough to know that there are more times than I care to admit that I have stumbled and falled and I have, I have joyfully dug in to that chocolate cake or whatever the besetting sin is, what happens to God's faithfulness then? This is the last thing I need you to understand. That God is faithful when you fail. When you fail, God remains faithful. He doesn't want you to. He wants to make you strong when you're weak. He wants to provide you a way out when you're tempted. But when you give in, when you succumb, God is faithful even then. 1 John 1, 9 says this, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all wickedness. To forgive and cleanse from all wickedness. That's the promise of God. It's his faithfulness. You're like, God, can you forgive me? And he's like, man, are you kidding me? That's what I died for. Because God is faithful and he doesn't give up. And see, here's what happens. If you're like me, most often you trust God when you're weak. Most often... When you're tempted, God provides a way out and you take it. You run away from sin. But every now and then, in your weakness, you see the temptation and you dig in. And then if you're like me, you're ashamed. You feel shame. But even then, even in your shame, God promises to come through. Here's what he says. He says, if we confess our sins, that means if we agree with him, that's what confession means. We agree with God. God, you are right. I am wrong. I agree with you that I sinned and I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to strive. I'm going to grow in you, God. I'm going to trust you and, and I'm going I'm to commit to growing so that this doesn't happen again. Uh, and I'm going I'm to work at this relationship. And, and when I make that, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. It's the promise of God. Last thing I'll tell you is this. 
2 Timothy says this, if we die with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure hardship, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're unfaithful, though, he remains faithful because he can't deny who he is. Notice the symmetry here. It's all cause and response, right? If I die with him, then I will get to live with him. Make sense? If, if I endure hardship now, I will reign with him, right? If I refuse Jesus in this life and I deny him, then I'm going to get to that moment. We talked about this last week, and, and, and I'm going to say, God, I know my name isn't written in the Lamb's book of life, but I'm really sorry. Let me in. He's going to deny me then. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Saddest words in scripture. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. But those are all these call response. What I do in, in his response, and, and so if I, if I die with him, I confess him, he is faithful to do this in my life. If I endure hardships, he is faithful to lift me up. If I deny him, then he'll deny me. That's, that's the faithfulness in his word that he's true to. But then you get to this last part. If we're unfaithful, you would assume finishing the, the thing that, well, then he'll be unfaithful to you. But that's not what he says. He says, if you're unfaithful, he remains faithful because he can't deny who he is and what happens to us christians when we when we eat the cake sometimes we keep eating the cake and there's shame but after a while what happens is we eat it so much and we engage in that sin so much that it kind of sears those shame receptors so that they're not as sensitive as they used to be. And so we engage in the sin over and over and over again, and, and, and we kind of we sear that off, and we, we stop being ashamed of our sin, and we start being okay with our sin, and we get stuck in this. Even then, when you are hardening your own heart, listen, even then, Christian, God is faithful. Why? Because it's who he is, and God can't deny who he is. And, and that, that, is, that is the God that is always on your side. That's the praise team to come up. We're going to pray for our offering here in a moment, and, uh, and then we're going to sing as we, as we close our service. But here's what I want you to know. I do a lot of premarital counseling, a lot of marital counseling too, and I always ask the question. I always ask the question uh, in premarital counseling. It's like, hey, here's what marriage is. It's a covenant commitment. You can't break it. It's solid. It's sound. This is what it is. It says, so, so what are, knowing this ahead of time, if I'm going to marry you, we need to understand what you're agreeing to, what this covenant is like. And so I always ask the question, what are the deal breakers for you? Like, what are the scenarios where you will, in your mind, where you will say, I want out of this marriage? And I always ask them to think about that. And I always make them linger a little bit because I, I want a good answer to that question. Because the people that are like, oh, there's nothing. Yeah, okay, stop and think about it. Because there's something. I promise you there's something. And you know what it almost always comes down to? Sometimes it comes down to alcohol or drug abuse. Because that's usually from someone who's experienced it in their past. And they just don't want to experience it in the future. That was one of Carrie's for me when we had that conversation. It was like, look, if you become an alcoholic... I'm not sure I can do that because I did that growing up and I don't want to do it anymore. Okay? More often than not, though, it's unfaithfulness. More often than not, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to, look, if they are going to cheat on me, then that is going to ruin our relationship and it's going to be over. And so most times we go into marriage when I do marriage counseling and that's, that's what everybody understands is that's the deal breaker. 
unfaithfulness is the deal breaker. And now if that happens, I pray that we can work on forgiveness and moving past it. That's always our goal. But it's always the deal breaker that they bring to the table. And here's the thing. I have cheated on God so many times. Like he has given me his standard. He has told me what's right. He has told me what's true. And I have made covenant promises to that God. And then I have gone and I flirted with other gods. And I've played with other gods. And I've cheated on him so many times. But yet, 1 John 1, 9 says that when I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And when I'm faithless, when I am unfaithful, he remains faithful. It's the promise. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. This is the time where we collect our morning's offering. If you're visiting with us, you can just drop this, uh, that, that note. Um, in the, but, but here's the deal, too. As we pray, this is an opportunity for you to decide that you want to be faithful. And maybe you're there already. Maybe you're living that faithful life. I feel like there's an echo here. I'm sorry about that. Uh, maybe, maybe you're living that life. But if you're like me and, and you find that, you know what? Faithfulness isn't your virtue. This is time to ask God for forgiveness. Confess to him. And he is just and right. And he will forgive you and he will cleanse you. And this is that opportunity. Okay? you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you how you've demonstrated faithfulness in our lives. And we thank you that, that you, not just in nature and not just with people in general, but that personally you shape us by your faithfulness. That as Christians, uh, well, that, is, it, that outside of Christ, you were faithful to offer your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that as Christians... You are faithful to never abandon us, to never quit on us, to always lift us up, to continue to pour into us, to provide strength when we're weak and, and, and to provide a way out when we're tempted. But, but God, even more unreal is that when we sin, you remain faithful. And when we confess our sins to you, you are right and just to forgive and cleanse us. Why? Because you're faithful. God, I just... We revel in that faithfulness. And I pray that those here this morning that are struggling in sin or that are struggling to know that you care about them or that you won't give up on them, I pray that you'll just touch their hearts today so that they can know that you are a God who is faithful and will never leave, abandon, or forsake them. And Father, uh, as, we, as we continue in our service, I pray that you'll take this offering that you'll bless it, that you'll multiply it, that you'll use it uh, to bring people into your kingdom, that you'll use it to bring light where there's darkness and hope where there's hopelessness and life where there's death, and that you'll do it not because anything else except for your faithfulness and your glory and your righteousness. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.